Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. We're opening our Bibles this evening to the book of Jude, the book of Jude, the next to the last book of the New Testament, the book of Jude. And we'll be focusing this evening, beginning in verse 17. Appreciate the ushers and their willingness to help out along the way in getting to you materials and ministering to us in our comings and goings and services week by week. Someone asked me recently about my health. And I shared with them, just trying to be honest, that my short-term memory is not what it used to be. And I've been dealing with a little bit of arthritis from time to time. I'm still getting used to progressive lenses. My hearing is not as sharp as it once was. My short-term memory is not what it used to be. (laughs) We all need to face the facts that we, uh, we all wrestle with recall from time to time. And Jude writes with that in mind. In verse 5, he says, I will therefore put you in remembrance. And now as we focus in on the 17th verse, Jude says, but beloved, remember... Jude is concerned that believers remember the principles that have been provided for them, for their safety, for the security of believers in the world, lest they fall prey to the evil one. And so he's stirring up our remembrance, our memories, with holy thoughts to keep us on the road that would honor the Lord. Let's read beginning in verse 17. Jude, the 17th verse, but beloved, Remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lust. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. Let's ask the Lord to bless as we look into His Word. Now, Father, I pray that You'd use Your Word this evening to help form for us those spiritual boundaries that are appropriate so that we might walk with wisdom in this present age, that we would be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Lord, help us to remember. We thank you this evening for the privilege of singing your word to you and stirring up our hearts. And I pray this evening, Lord, that you would allow the book of Jude to do exactly as the Spirit of God desires, that it would be to us that challenging word that would cause us to earnestly contend for the faith. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You'll recall that Jude wanted to write to his audience about the common salvation. He had in mind being a blessing. Nothing could be more wonderful, we were reminded of that even in the song that Betsy sang this evening, than thinking about the blessings that are enjoyed because of the salvation that's been provided through the death, the burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though he wanted to write about that common salvation according to verse 2, the Spirit of God redirected him. And in the redirection, Jude now is writing a book with this theme. It's found in verse 3. That we should earnestly contend for the faith that's once been delivered to the saints. And in order to help us know how to earnestly contend for the faith, in verses 5, 6, and 7 of this brief letter, Jude reminds his readers that just as the children of Israel had come out of Egypt and then drew back, 
Just as the angels left their first estate, and just as Sodom and Gomorrah did not obey the warnings that were given to them and thus fell, even so, we find ourselves in our journey facing perils and facing dangers along the way. And so there's a warning that's offered. In verse 8, the book of Jude offers a warning with regard to spiritual insubordination. And to illustrate it, Jude says, even Michael, the archangel, in battling for the body of Moses, dared not to make a railing accusation against Satan. And yet, he says, there are those who are apostates, who profess to be part of the body of Christ, who creep in, his words, unawares, who are very impotent when it comes to the matter of how they behave toward others. They speak, according to verse 10, of things they don't know. And so Jude gives to us a very descript portrait of what an apostate would look like in verses 11 through 13. And then he provides for us, as we recently discovered, the most ancient prophecy spoken through a man, that being the prophecy of Enoch. And how Enoch spoke before he ascended up into heaven, of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment. As we come to the 17th verse of the book of Jude, we come to a turning point. The turning point in verse 17 is marked because Jude, having spoken about those in the past as examples, examples not to follow, examples to learn from in order to be warned, now he begins to exhort the faithful. He's given to us these portraits, these pictures of those that we've seen who failed in the Old Testament times. And now he exhorts. He exhorts believers to be faithful. He understands, as we should understand, that certain ones have crept in unawares. He says that in verse 4. They've interrupted the fellowship that believers ought to enjoy. He's been pointing them out and pointing them out and pointing them out. These infiltrators. You'll see in verse 8, likewise also these. You'll see in verse 10, but these, he says, speak evil of those things. In verse 11, woe unto them. In verse 12, he says, these are spots in your feast. In verse 14, and Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these. In verse 16, these are murmurers and complainers. And then in verse 19, these be they who separate themselves. His focus very clearly has been on warning us so that we know what apostasy looks like. Now, beginning in verse 17, Jude begins to exhort those who would survive spiritually. And as he exhorts toward the end of this book, he's going to say that those who would survive spiritually must first of all remember. In verse 17, Beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 21, he's going to say, if you would stand, then you need to remain. In verse 21, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And you need to reach out. He speaks of that beginning in verse 22. And if some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. And finally, in verses 24 and 25, in this exhortational section, this instructional section, making it applicable what he has been teaching, he's going to say you need to rest in the goodness of the Lord, for he is the one who's able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of the glory 
with exceeding joy. We open our Bibles this evening to verses 17 to 19 of the book of Jude, where the Spirit of God challenges every believer to remember, remember or risk being swept away by spiritual ruin. In verse 17, but beloved, remember ye. Three quarters of the book of Jude is done. This is the very first time that Jude uses an imperative, the voice of command. And the very first command he gives is this command, remember ye. He's calling for your attention. He's putting you on alert. All of us have no doubt tried to use memory aids, some with greater success than others. People talk about tying a string around their finger. I never remember where I kept my string, let alone tying it around my finger. Sometimes I've known people to move jewelry from one arm to another to try to remind them. I've even taken notes. I take a lot of notes. Have you ever taken notes and then looked back at your notes and thought, I don't know what I was talking about? That seems to happen to me with great frequency. We, cha- we are challenged with the matter of remembrance. In the passage to which we've turned this evening, there are three important matters that those who would survive spiritually need to remember. First, they need to remember the responsibility that God has given to them to review and rehearse, to consider and meditate upon the instructions that they've been given. Jude's epistle, after all, is a compilation of spirit-guided quotes. These are spirit-led, spirit-woven reminders that are given to believers. In verse 5, I will therefore put you in remembrance. In verse 17, he circles back, but beloved, remember... And in between, he packs in all kinds of materials that ought to be commonly known to those who are Bible readers. Jude exhorts those that he loves to remember because every believer is responsible to remember. And because of that, we should expect repetition. We should expect repetition. Jude is alluding to the Old Testament nine times in the verses that we've already considered. He's citing two apocryphal books to bring back and stir up to remembrance the things that his readers ought to already be familiar with. He's brought them back to the Old Testament. He's brought them back to books that they've known, the Assumption of Moses, the Book of Enoch, commonly circulating books, spiritual books at the time that Jude was alive, though they're apocryphal. He's using things that are stirring up their memories already. He wants to repeat things to them that they've already known and do it with a purpose. Seems like every time I ever even think of repeating a message that I've ever preached, someone will come up to me with their Bible and they'll say, Pastor Phelps, I take notes in my margins. And I'm noting here that you shared the same message or something very similar to this message back at a a certain date. Now, I'll be confessing here for a moment. I don't repeat many messages. Part of that is just part of my temperament. I don't read a book a second time. Other than the Bible, there's, there's seldom a time that I go back and say, I'd really profit from reading that book again. That's kind of who I am. So going back and repeating messages, not something Pastor Phelps does very often, but once in a while, and every time somebody will let me know about it. <laughs> and until I really studied the book of Jude and prepared the message for this evening, it, it kind of bothered me a little bit but I shouldn't be bothered. 
In fact, I should be convicted to preach some of the same messages more than once and preach them again and again. Because what Jude is doing here is presenting a model. Before he says, remember ye, before he gives this command, he's rehearsing things that they've already known. He's using the tool of repetition, and he's using that tool of repetition very wisely. Without repetition, it's very difficult for our minds to absorb truths. The Athenians were the ones who first coined the phrase, repetition is the mother of learning, and it really is. Believers need to have things repeated to them over and again. In fact, the Apostle Paul is going to write to the Philippians and say in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things unto you, to me indeed is not grievous, but to you it's needful. We need to expect repetition of biblical truths. One of the glories of singing hymns like we sang this evening, Yea, justified, O blessed thought, and glorified salvation wrought. What blessings to be able to rehearse these things regularly and with the expectation of repetition, which is the aid to memory, there ought to also come a willingness to endure application. Because Jude is about to make some very strong applications. You see, spirit-guided reminders, such as these that are filling the book of Jude, are given to challenge the behavior of believers to bring about spiritual change. You shall know the truth, John 8, verse 32, and the truth shall make you free. But to be free, you must first know the truth. And to know the truth requires repetition, and to know the truth is going to require application. Did you know that we're living in an age where Bible-believing evangelical Christians are much drawn to biblical exposition that is devoid of personal application. Some very famous preachers in our generation are wonderful expositors of God's Word. Exposition of the text, explaining the text, bringing out the truths of the text, but never making a practical, personal, pointed application of the text. A few years ago, I was speaking in a Bible college, and a young man sought an appointment with me, and he said this. He said, Dr. Phelps, because that's what he called me on that occasion, Dr. Phelps, other students and I really, really appreciate your preaching. You're, you're teaching us so much about the Bible, but it just seems like every message you have to make some sort of application. Can you kind of back off on that? It's the first time I'd ever been asked that, but I had a response. I said to him, you know, I'm going to give you an assignment. If you take the book of Acts and you read how the Apostle Paul preached on the day of Pentecost, you're going to read and discover that he exhorted them. Take the word exhort and look it up. The word exhort, parakaleo, means to come alongside to bring what the truth is alongside into life. It actually means to at some measure make application, to bring it so people can see it in daily living. I said, go through the book of Acts, study the, book, the word exhort, then go through the epistles, and as you come through the epistles, you'll come to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And I actually said this in my answer to him. I said, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the apostle Paul is going to write to Timothy while he's pastoring in Ephesus, and he's going to say to Timothy, 
Timothy, reprove, rebuke, exhort. There's that same word, parakaleto, bring it alongside, make application with all long-suffering and doctrine, for the time will come when people will turn away from sound doctrine, seeking after teaching have teachers having itching ears. True New Testament preaching requires application to be made. In fact, any kind of real preaching is going to require such application. So as Jude now begins this exhorting section, and for the very first time uses an imperative in verse 17, remember ye, he's not saying, now I've got a suggestion for you. He's saying, based on all we've shared about the losses of the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt, up at the angels who lost their first estate, based on all that I've already shared about Sodom and Gomorrah and its fall, based on what I've shared about what Enoch has said, based on all these truths that have been put in front of you that I'm stirring up in your memory, I need to tell you this. I'm not suggesting this. You need to remember. He's making application of the text. Ezra set that pattern way back in the Old Testament, the book of Ezra and chapter 8. As the children of Israel were busy building the temple and the walls of Israel, Ezra chapter 8 tells us that they came together at the water gate. There was a water gate before there was a hotel in Washington, D.C., and before Richard Nixon lived. They came together at the water gate, and as they came together at the water gate, the Word of God tells us they had a great revival. How did that revival come to be? Well, Nehemiah 8 and verse 8 says, they read the book of the law of God distinctly, and they gave the sense, and they caused them to understand the reading. They didn't just read, but they made sure the, under, the people understood what had been read, and then they made application of what had been heard. This is God's pattern for real revival to come, for God's people to be instructed. There is a measure of wisdom in how to balance a message. Every biblical message ought to have exposition, ought to be grounded in God's Word. It ought to have explanation of that exposition. And then the exposition and the explanation needs to be followed with application and even illustration because after all, an illustration is a window of truth that allows the light to shine into the soul. Jude is modeling that in a very real way. He's not just woven together all these things that were in the minds of the people. He's challenging them. He's challenging them to repeat and rehearse, to apply these truths so that they can stand fast in an evil time. As we come to verses 17 and 18, we discover that Jude wants us to remember the prophecy that's been given. You'll recall in verses 14 to 16 that Jude reaches back to Enoch and brings forward the most ancient prophecy ever spoken by a man. But now he reaches more recently when he says in verse 17, Beloved, remember ye the words which are spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk after their own ungodly lust. Jude wants his readers to remember that the apostles have regularly repeated this warning. Warning, alert. They'll come, those who will creep in to your assembly, to the circle of influence in which you walk, and they will seek to draw you astray. They are apostates. And so it is that as you read the New Testament, you'll find this being brought up over and over. For instance, in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes and says, 
This know also that in the last days perilous times will come. And he says in verse 13 of that same chapter, evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3, there shall come scoffers in the last times. 1 John 2 and verse 18, the Apostle John writes, Little children, it's the last times. And as you've heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we may know that it's the last time. 1 John 4 and verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they be of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And where did the apostles discover this awful warning? about apostasy and growing apostasy, about false teachers and more and more false teachers, especially as we come toward the last times. Where do they get that instruction? Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15. Beware, he says, of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Mark 13 and verse 22, the Lord Jesus speaking to his disciples for false Christ and false prophets shall rise up. And he notes in this passage that the apostles warn us that these false prophets can be seen and recognized because they are mockers. They told you that there should be mockers in the last times. And the word translated mockers is the same word that's used in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3 to warn again of those who are living in the last times and their characteristics. The last times. You keep saying that, Pastor Phelps. We entered into the last times at the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. The last times really deals with everything from the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ through the tribulation age on into the millennium. We are living in the last times. Really? Yes. John said that way back in 1 John chapter 2. He said, little children, it is the last time. And one of the characteristics of the last times is there'll be those, he says, who are mockers. Interesting word. This word mocker means somebody who ridicules, somebody who scoffs, somebody who kind of questions everything and treats most everything as if it's unimportant, treating truths of God's Word and treating beliefs of believers with contempt and ridicule. Apostates ridicule what they don't understand. Why? Because Satan loves to foster doubt. Yea, hath God said. And he loves to encourage derision. You will not surely die. Satan loves to cause division. He's the accuser of the brethren who accuses us night and day. Satan loves to produce destruction. His end, Philippians 3 and verse 19, is destruction. And how does he do this? He sends in mockers. Mockers who ridicule the doctrines that we hold dear. Mockers who ridicule the standards. Mockers who ridicule those values that believers have come to hold dear in their lives. I've heard mockers, and you have too. I've heard mockers who mock things like submission in the home, really, where do you get that? I mean, isn't, isn't there an equality? Male and female, come on. We need to brush that aside. I've met many women who are better suited to lead the home than the men. 
Mockers. Mockers who mock about entertainment choices. Oh, come on, it's not going to hurt you. You can watch a little bit of that. Really? You're going to turn it off if violence comes on the tube? Mockers apparently haven't read Genesis chapter 6, where the Word of God says, in the times of Noah, there were terrible times. In those terrible times, there was not only evil, but there was violence on every hand. Mockers who ridicule what have commonly been accepted as some measure of modesty standards and concerns. Really? Showing a little bit of skin and you're all upset about that? Hey, this is 2023! Mockers who talk about alcohol. Seriously. I mean, do we have to go there anymore, Pastor Phelps? Most evangelicals today, after all, are snipping a little bit. The Bible doesn't have any specific verse that says, thou shalt not drink a beer. Mockers who say, what's the difference really between having a wedding and pronouncing your vows and a private, you know, commitment and moving in? Mockers who along the way begin to question the literal return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's such a complexity. How is it that you'd spend so much time in biblical prophecy and eschatology? You know, everybody's confused by that. Do we really have to go there again? After all, people have been preaching about that kind of stuff for how many years, and it hasn't happened yet, has it? (laughs) If you think you haven't heard mockers, you haven't really listened. This passage says one of the things that you need to be concerned about as you enter into the last age, if you'd walk carefully, if you'd be protected, is those who are mockers, because mockers are walkers. And that's what we see in verse 18. For they walk after their own ungodly lust. First they mock, (laughs) then they walk. Rather than living in submission to the Lord, the apostate submits to the flesh. Jesus said in John 3 and verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Romans chapter 6 warns in verse 6 that to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity with God. For it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be, so then they that are of the flesh cannot please God. There's a difference between walking in the flesh and walking in the Spirit. God's people are called to separate from godless lifestyles. There ought to be a difference. There ought to be a difference. The mocker becomes a walker. And so the Apostle Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, and he says in verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, H-O-L-Y, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. When we speak about living in a different manner, we speak of that with great concern. Remember that the apostles prophesied that in the last time there would come mockers who become walkers who live in the lust of the flesh. A message like the message you're hearing this evening might sound archaic, even antique, From time to time, 
My soul has been refreshed by the reading of Spurgeon. Spurgeon was concerned about the mockers and the walkers in his time. Way back in 1887, he writes in The Sword and the Trowel, At the back of doctrinal falsehood comes a natural decline of spiritual life, evidenced by a taste for questionable amusements, a weariness of devotional meetings. A certain meeting of ministers and church officers, one after another, doubted the value of prayer meetings. As for questionable amusement, said Spurgeon, time was when a nonconformist minister was known, who was known to attend the playhouse, would soon have found himself without a church. And justly so, for no man can long possess the confidence even of the most worldly who is known to be a haunter of theaters. Yet at the present time, it's a matter of notoriety that preachers of no mean repute defend the playhouse and do so because they've been seen there. Is any wonder that church members forget their vows of consecration and run with the unholy in the ways of frivolity when they hear that the persons are tolerated and the pastorate do the same? The fact is, says Spurgeon, that many would like to unite the church and stage, cards and prayer, dancing and sacraments. If we're powerless to stem this torrent, we can at least warn men of its existence and entreat them to keep out of it. When the old faith is gone and the enthusiasm for the gospel is extinct, it's no wonder that people seek something else in the way of delight. Lacking bread, they feed on ashes. Rejecting the way of the Lord, they run greedily in the path of folly. In every generation, this is the same battle. Don't be weary in well-doing. Allow yourself to live remembering the things that you've learned. And remember how to identify the apostates. This passage reminds us of our responsibility to be word-based, reminds us of the apostolic warnings, and causes us to remember the identity of the apostates. Detailed descriptions of the apostates have been provided for us. In verse 8, likewise these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, speak evil of dignities. In verse 10, these speak evil of those things that they know not of. In verse 12, these are spots in your feast of charity. When they feast with you, they feed themselves without fear. They're clouds without water. They're carried about with wind. They're trees without, whose fruit withers, whose fruit twice dead was plucked up by the roots. In verse 15, we're to execute judgment, and, God, and the Lord is going to rather execute judgment and convince all that are ungodly of their ungodly deeds. He's identifying and identifying and identifying till we come to this now in these verses. He says in verse 19, these, speaking of the apostates, be those who separate themselves. Separation. Now, wait a minute, Pastor Phelps. Separation is a doctrine that those who believe in the holiness of God tend to teach and consider often. This is interesting. In the book of Jude, Jude claims that the real separatists who separate themselves from those who love the Lord are the apostates. This word means to mark off with a boundary. Some say that the apostates who crept in were teaching that there are some who have real knowledge and some who really don't. Some who are really in touch with God and some who are really not. Some who know the mysteries that God has given and some who don't know the mysteries that they were teaching something that's called Gnosticism. I'm not sure about that, but I do know this. Jude blames, listen, Jude blames the apostates for dividing the body of Christ. He says they are the ones who mark the boundaries. 
They're the ones who are the separatists. How often have you heard, you separatist, you legalist? Jude would respond to that this way. Friend, without apostasy, there'd be wonderful unity. It's the apostate who drew the boundary. Because the apostate drew the boundary, we have to cry out in warning, lest people walk over the boundary with them. Jude puts it in their court. Isn't that interesting? That's the inspired consideration of the Spirit of God through the pen of Jude. Jude says, these are they who separate. They're the ones who brought the problems in. Had they not brought the problems in, no one would have to consider them, and no one would have to consider what side of the boundary they stand on. It's not the, far, the, the fault of those who are seeking holiness. It's the fault of those who are not. Separation would not need to be taught if there were not those who were bringing in that wickedness that can lure souls away. Interesting. He speaks of them as soulish ones. He says they are sensual. Apostates are led by their natural impulses, not by the Spirit of God. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, they're spiritually discerned, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14. I am a trichotomist. What does that mean? I believe that man is woven together by three parts. There is the body that we see, there is the soul that we're born with, there is the spirit that's renewed when we're born again. But that spirit at our natural birth is dead. We're dead in our trespasses and sin and can only be revived by that special work of the Spirit of God. I am a trichotomist. There are those who are dichotomist. And we can all get along together. And someday in heaven, I'll be able to say to them, see, I was right. Why do I say that? Well, I believe that man is three parts because in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, the Word of God says that it's powerful enough to divide asunder the soul and the spirit. Two parts. I see that same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23. I pray that your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the Lord Jesus Christ. In this passage, Jude is saying these are sensual. Literally, they are soulish. Yes, they are alive, but they're not spiritually alive. There is a wisdom that is soulish. James speaks about it in James chapter 3. It's a wisdom that descends not from above, but it's earthly, it's sensual, it's soulish, it's devilish. And so, sounding wise, the apostate who's really walking in the soul, not the spirit, is finding others who are seduced by the conversation. Jude says, indeed, these are spiritless. For he says, having not the spirit. And literally here, he's speaking of having not the Holy Spirit. Because he says in verse 20, but ye beloved, building yourself up in the most holy faith. He's going to talk about building ourselves up in the holy faith and praying in the Holy Ghost. But these that he speaks of, these apostates, do not have the Holy Ghost. They were not, as true believers, Ephesians 1 and verse 3, sealed by the Holy Ghost. They are not part of the body, for 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13 says, by one spirit we're all baptized into one body. Romans 8 and verse 9 says, but you're not in the flesh but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. 
And if any man have not the Spirit of God, he is none of his. John Hunter said, there's nothing worse that can be said of a man who desires to be esteemed a Christian than he lacks the Holy Spirit. Reality is, lacking the Holy Spirit, he's no Christian at all. The story is told of a British missionary who was in a home of an Indian woman. When the Indian woman, very quietly, said, can someone bring some milk into the room? Immediately when she asked for milk to come into the room, everyone froze. I wouldn't have knowledge to freeze when someone asked for milk in the room. Everyone froze and they stood silently until someone brought some milk in the room and they put the milk down. And when they put the milk down, unraveling from around this woman's ankles and from under her skirt went a cobra to the milk. Apparently, cobras love milk. So when the woman said, can someone bring some milk into the room, she didn't raise her voice. She didn't demonstrate any agitation. She simply said, can you bring some into the room? And everyone was alert enough to know we've got a crisis on our hands. Even so, as Jude writes, he's stirring up remembrances. He's saying, now remember these things, folks. Don't let them pass from your memory. You're walking in a field of spiritual seduction. Real eternal issues are on the line. And fear or ignorance, fear or ignorance can cause great harm. So remember, remember, remember. Beloved, remember you the words which are spoken of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lust. These be they that separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast. Thank you.